For those of you who don't know me, my name is Josh Dojro. I'm the youth and family pastor here at Placerita Bible Church, and so I get the privilege of overseeing uh, the ministries that run from the nursery all the way through high school, and it is an absolute privilege uh, to be able to serve in that capacity here at Placerita. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, your word encourages our hearts when we are discouraged. Lord, your word solidifies our faith when we struggle. Your word helps us to stand strong. Lord, your word rattles our cage. Your word convicts our heart. Lord, your word uh, brings us to you. And your word helps us like a mirror, helps us to see how we are. Lord, and I pray that our word this morning, or your word this morning, excuse me, would, would convict us, would encourage us, would help us to learn to pray better for the lost around us. And Lord, I pray that your word would, Lord, would cause us to leave this room different than the way that we came in, that we would be different because we've looked intently in your word. In your name we pray, amen. January 20th, I was trying to drive home a couple years back. We were living in the city of Acireales, Sicily, and we had done what, what you would probably have done if you were in our place living in that city and you had an active volcano in your backyard in the middle of winter. You drive to the top of it. Uh, because in the middle of winter, an active volcano has made all of, the, all of the hills, all of the trees, all of everything else just smooth, and there's snow on that hill the active volcano. And so you grab a boogie board and you jump on that snow and you go sledding and it is amazing. We had gone up, it was a day off on August, or sorry, January 20th. It was a day off uh, from school. So we had the kids home and we went up and we were sledding and, and I never did it, but I figured if you could find the right way, just looking from the top, you could, you could easily do like a four or five kilometer sled run. But there's roads in between, so you might have to like build a ramp to jump the roads or something. But it was an amazing time, and when we got home, we were tired, and there's a police officer stopped uh, on the road, and he's redirecting traffic, and literally, our, the road that we needed was like from here to the sound booth. We just needed to get there to turn up. And the police officer was redirecting, and I said, well, I just need to go right there, Via Manzoni, that's my road. And he said, he is on your road. You can't go now. He's on your road. I said, he's on my road? St. Sebastian was on my road. In Italy and in the, well, in the Roman Catholic Church, for those of you who grew up with a Roman Catholic background, you'll, this will seem normal to you. For us who have grown up in the evangelical church, it's a little different, but there are patron saints over all kinds of things in Italy. In fact, uh, I mean in the Roman Catholic Church, not just Italy, there are 1,776 patron saints according to catholic.org defined as this, a patron saint's uh, or patron saints are chosen as special protectors or guardians over areas of life. These areas can include occupations, illnesses, churches, countries, causes, and even cities. Anything that is important to us. The earliest records show that people and churches were named after apostles and martyrs as early as the fourth century. So our city, the city of, of Achiriale, had as its patron saint over the city St. Sebastian. Uh, and there are patron saints over all kinds of things. Again, you can go to catholic.org and you can search them. And I, I list some of these not to, not to make little or make light of what people believe and hold dear, but just to help you understand how different it is from the way that we would look at things. Uh, there are patron saints over all kinds of things. Uh, alcoholism, the patron saint is St. Matthias the Apostle. Uh, if Headaches, the patron saint over headaches is St. Teresa of uh, Avila. The funeral directors, this one's kind of obvious, St. Joseph of Arimathea, the saint of love, St. Valentine of Rome. Um, the saint of preachers, John Christostom, the golden mouth. Uh, the saint over sore eyes is St. Augustine who happens to also be the saint over theologians. Uh, there's a saint for travelers. There's a saint for law enforcement officers. There's, there's a saint over anything that you hold dear. And again, I don't share that to belittle uh, what people hold dear. 
but just to show you the way that the Roman Catholic Church views patron saints. And so there I was on my road trying to go home and he was on my road, Sebastian. And history and, and uh, story kind of can confuse things in some ways. What we know about Sebastian is that he lived uh, around 200, well in 283 AD, he joined the army uh, to help deal with the martyr issue under Diocletian. Diocletian was the emperor who was persecuting the, uh, the, event, or the Christian church at the time. Uh, it was one of the harshest persecutions under Diocletian and he joined the army to help with that and he became a captain of the Praetorian Guard. While a captain under the Praetorian Guard, however, he came to Christ. And he started evangelizing or preaching the gospel to the people in jail and the people that, that he would help arrest, he would then preach the gospel to. Uh, or the people that were in jail that didn't know Christ, he would preach the gospel to. In 286, Diocletian found out that he was a Christian, reproached him for his faith, tied him to a tree and had a choice set of archers fill his body with arrows. In fact, the quote is he was so full, he was like an urchin full of pricks. That's how many arrows he had in him. Then they left him for dead. He didn't die and Irene of Rome came and found him, later to become Saint Irene of Rome, helped nurse him back to health. Well, at this point, he is jobless, obviously. They thought he was dead. So he sets himself up where he knew that Diocletian would be coming through in a parade and he started preaching to Diocletian. Diocletian, thinking he was dead, was slightly freaked out and uh, when he came to, kind of, he came to his senses, he ordered, he ordered Sebastian to be arrested and then clubbed to death. That's Sebastian, and he was on my road. He was stopping me from getting home. And the way that, that looked, what it looked like was that every year on January 20th, they pull his statue out of the main church in the city, and the group of guys that would lead the statue around, there's about between 30 and 60, they're called Ragazzi di Sebastiano, the boys of Sebastian, and they would carry him around. It was a massive cart, and it would take 30 to 60 guys to carry him around through every single road in town, and it was like a party. There was fireworks going on, there's celebration, there's food being sold. January 20th, he was on my road. From our perspective, we look at that, and it's easy for us to see idol worship. Uh, there was another day in our town, our specific house was in the neighborhood that was dedicated to Mary herself, and Mary would be brought out of the church once a year, and she was brought through the town. And you could, we'd watch her come underneath our balcony and keep going, and it was a day of celebration. That's odd for us, it's foreign for us, it's different for us. And it's easy for us to look at that at idol worship and you may not have things like that in your home but all throughout Italy there'd be stickers in car windows of a saint, uh, Padre Pio was the new saint at the time and so there'd be stickers of him all over the place. You'd see a calendar of, of Catholic saints on the wall. Uh, you would see all over the place people having little pictures or little statues or little things around their houses. And for us, it's easy to see that as idol worship. Now, none of you have those things in your home, but maybe you grew up in an environment where they were there. Maybe that's something that you recognize, you, you saw that. Maybe you don't have a little Buddha statue in your home and you might be thinking, but I'm not an idol worshiper. I don't worship idols. Well, let me, let me rattle your cage just a little bit. Flip in your Bible to the New Testament, 1 John chapter 5. John's writing to believers. And in fact, he says in chapter 5, uh, verse 13, these things I have written to you, that, uh, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing to believers. These are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, believers who have come out of paganism. They've come out of this world of idol worship that's a very different world than, than what we're used to, even different from what goes on around us now. And John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know. And I want you to catch hold of that idea of may know. Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have before him. Look down at verse 15. If we know, midway through verse 15, we know 
He's going on and on about the things that you and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, know. As those of us who have been saved, these are things that we can be confident in because we know them to be true. Look down at verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we might know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. And in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. John is writing that you would be encouraged. These are things that you know with confidence. But look at the last verse in 1 John chapter five. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. That should cause us to sit up a little bit straighter. It should cause us to think a little bit. It should cause us to say, wait a minute, John's writing to believers about the things that they know with certainty. They have a foundation. They're not gonna falter from that because we know these things. And yet John says at the very end of his letter, the very last thing that he writes, believer, believer, guard your heart, protect your heart from idols. Be careful because they are around you. John Calvin said this, the human heart is an idol factory. Every one of us from our mother's womb is an expert in inventing idols. So you may not have a little Buddha sitting on your shelf. You may not have pictures of saints and people that you pray to around your house, but beware believer, you have idols in your heart and you have things from outside trying to vie for position to take God's place in your heart. You might be thinking that you're not in any danger of idols in your life, but let's think about idols for a little bit. An idol is anything that rises up to take God's glorious place on his throne in your heart. Anything that could threaten God's place in your heart is an idol. Anything that consumes your passion and desires more than God just might be an idol. Anything that threatens to turn the first fruits of your mind from God to something else just might be an idol in your life. Let me ask you some questions. Do you know sports stats better than you know Bible stats? Ouch. You might have an idol. Do you know more about cars and tools and barbecue tips and tricks than you do about God's very word? You might have an idol in your life. Do you care more about keeping up with Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, or social media in general than you do about loving your neighbor? You might have an idol in your life. Do you spend more time and money on coffee and movies and organic food than you do in supporting and sustaining your local church? You might have an idol. Are you more knowledgeable about shiplap and home decorating techniques than how God desires the nations to be saved? You might have an idol. Am I stepping on toes yet? Oh, I've got more. Are you more knowledgeable about your keto, your Whole30, gluten-free for weight loss, paleo, bulletproof, carnivore, weight watchers, et cetera, diet, than you know about your church's missionaries? We just talked about, uh, Pat Hamlin talked about uh, Christmas in October. It said we have 11 missionaries. Do you know all 11 of our missionaries? Do you know who they are? But are you more knowledgeable about other things rather than them? You might have an idol. Do you scroll on your screen more than read God's word? Say it with me. You might have an idol. Are you more knowledgeable about music lyrics and have more of them memorized than you have Bible verses memorized? <sighs> Say it. You might have an idol. Are you more knowledgeable about why homeschooling, public schooling, or private schooling is better than knowing how many books there are in the Bible? Do you even know their order? You might have an idol. Do you spend more time watching football or baseball? And I'd add soccer to that, but I'm pretty sure that's not most of your problem, right? You might have an idol. Do you watch more sports, TVs, 
and, or TV and movies, do you love them more than you love reading God's word? You might have an idol. Some of these are said in jest, but they're real, right? It's easy to set up anything, anything in your life that takes the place of God's glorious throne in, in, in your heart and in your mind. That thing might easily become an idol. Little children, protect yourselves from idol, John says. Did I step on your toes? In some ways, I hope so. Don't we need that? We need God's word to step on our toes a little bit. We need God's word to rattle our cage and wake us up. This morning, I want us to look uh, in Isaiah 44. So open your Bibles there if you haven't gone there yet. And I want you to, we're gonna be looking at how God's word helps us and teaches us to protect our hearts from idols. If I were to ask you, how big is your God? How would you answer that question? How big is your God? The theologians in the room might say something along the lines of, well, I couldn't even describe how big my God is. He's omnipresent. He fills all spaces and all time with the fullness of his presence. I, I couldn't describe how big he is, but I believe in the title I had, how big is your God, lowercase g as well. What little thing do you have that tries to take God's place in your heart and in your mind? The context for Isaiah 44 is Isaiah is a prophet. He's prophesying about 100 years before the fall of Jerusalem. And it's really fascinating to me. He's prophesying not to the people that are listening to him, but he's prophesying to people more than 150, 170 years later, the ones who are in exile, they're the ones he's prophesying to. So to really understand this text, we need to move into exile with him. To really understand the people reading this for the first time, who are in exile, we need to be there. You've grown up in exile. However old you are, they've been in exile for 70 years. Maybe you were born and your family was in exile already in Babylon. Maybe you're in your 50s right now and you've lived in exile your entire life. That's all you know is exile. That's the context. You've lived, you've grown up living in a foreign country in a foreign culture dominated by foreign gods and foreign idol worship and they've made fun of you because of it. Where's your God? Who is this Yahweh powerless God that he is? He couldn't even save you. He's probably abandoned you, is what the Babylonians would say. How would that be? What would it be like to grow up your entire life in exile, wondering, has God abandoned us? Did he forget us? What happened? Look at Isaiah 44, verse six. Here's God's introduction to this section. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. There is no God besides me. Here God starts off with the classic beginning, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord. This is the word of God himself. And Isaiah, remember, he's prophesying to people who are in exile. So if that's us and we're close to the 70 years of exile being done, imagine reading this for the first time. Thus says Yahweh, the, the king of Israel. Yahweh is his eternal name. It, it's what connects them to Moses and the burning bush. You remember that in Exodus chapter three where Moses sees the burning bush and he says, if I go back and God wants Moses to go back to Egypt to, to rescue, to redeem Israel from Egypt, Moses says, who shall I tell them sent me? And he says, tell them I am that I am. It's the, the name that that talks about God's eternalness. This very God that delivered them from Egypt is the same Lord who will deliver them from Babylon. He says he is the king of Israel. I love that title. Imagine you're in captivity and you're under some foreign king. And yet God says, no, I am the king of Israel. I've always been the king of Israel and Israel will always be mine. He is their king in captivity. He's their king in adversity. He hasn't abandoned them and won't abandon them. He hasn't thrown them out. 
And he goes on to say, his redeemer, right? Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his redeemer. It's a title that's used 14 times in the book of Isaiah and it only starts in Isaiah chapter 40 when these oracles or proclamations to the captives are given. And he says, I am your redeemer. I'm your rescuer. I'm the one who will bring you out. Put it together and it's as if the Lord is saying, I'm the eternal king who has never left you, but will redeem you. And I'm the Lord of hosts, the, the Lord over the angelic armies. Babylon has nothing. And yet you're in Babylon. You're reading this from Babylon. But I think it would be encouraging to hear that. I think it would be encouraging to hear that, yes, it feels like we've been abandoned and it feels like God has forgotten us and it feels and it feels and it feels, yet this we can be sure of, God has not abandoned us. And he goes on. This is, by the way, just his introduction. That's just the beginning. He says, I'm the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. This is a phrase that the Lord uses to set up really the rest of the argument, the rest of the text that we're gonna look at starts here. And he says, literally in the Hebrew, I myself first and I myself last. Without me, no gods. He says, I'm it. They may worship other gods and they may have a pantheon of gods. They may have gods for every little thing on the planet, but know this, I am God. I am the first and the last. He declares that he is the beginning and the end. This is the basic meaning of his name, Yahweh even. It's the eternal God, the covenant keeping God. He knows the end before the beginning and we're gonna get to that in a little bit. So after declaring who he is, after announcing who he is by, by means of his own introduction, he's then gonna go and he's gonna give us uh, two ways to guard our hearts. And we're gonna look at the first one right now, verses seven and eight. Guard your heart by knowing his greatness. How do we protect our hearts like John asked us to in 1 John chapter five? What do we need to do to protect our hearts from idols? And the first thing we need to do is to gaze at his greatness. We need to guard our hearts by knowing his greatness. So after declaring what makes him God, he unleashes a taunting challenge for any God to take a stand, to stand up before him and declare himself better than Yahweh. He says this in verse seven, who is like me? Let him declare it. Let him call out and declare it and let him tell me in order from the time that I established the ancient people and let them declare to them the things that are to come and the events that are going to take place. Verse eight, do not be in dread and do not be afraid. Have not I long since caused it to be heard to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God besides me or is there any other rock? I know of none. Remember Judah's surrounded by foreign gods in exile. He, they're surrounded by people tempting them to change. They're surrounded by people taunting them and trying to mess with them. Your gods are nothing. So here God says, stand up, you foreign God. Stand up, you idol. It's as if God's taking off his, his metaphoric glove and he's slapping the idols in the face and tossing it on the ground, challenging them to a duel. He says, stand up before me. The Lord unleashes this challenge that will strengthen the weak of heart and it will shatter the boastful in their false gods. The first challenge, he says, is let them declare. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it and declare it. Yes, let him recount to me in order from the time I established the ancient nation. In other words, history. Let this other idol stand up and, and give me the history of everything that happened in Israel. Think about our church right now. Could, could anyone stand up and give a brief history about Placerita Bible Church? Possibly so. Could someone stand up and give a detailed account of every single thing that happened at Placerita Bible Church? Probably not. And here God says, not just about a time frame, but all the way from the beginning. Let this false, 
fake and phony God stand up and tell me every single thing that's happened? That's a challenge. And there's some ways where that would be not completely impossible in the sense of knowing some stuff, right? Anyone with an internet access can go back and search Wikipedia on something and you could become a little minute historian in some detail, but never to the amount that God could be. No idol could stand up and give an account of every single thing that's happened, but the real test is the one to come. It's not only about history, but the real test of a God comes next. He says, and let them, this is uh, midway through verse seven, and let them declare to them the things that are coming, the events that are going to take place. Listen, we can all be somewhat good at history. I know what happened yesterday in my life. I can tell you the things that we did yesterday and the, the roughly the time that I got up and we went to watch a master's university swim meet and then we went to the beach for about an hour and then came, I could, I could detail the things that happened yesterday. I can't tell you a single thing that's gonna happen in 15 minutes. No one can. We can guess what's gonna happen tomorrow and we can, tell, we can talk about what we plan on doing over Christmas break. We can talk about what we want to do in the summer, but the reality is none of us can declare the future like God, clan, like God can. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega in the book of Revelation. Here he says, I am the first and I am the last. I can tell you what will happen and I can tell it to you from the beginning because I'm the God who is outside of time, of created time. In the moment that he said, let there be light, time began. That blows my mind away. When did God begin being God? Never, he was. Everything around us has a beginning. This piece of wood grew on a tree at some point and had a beginning. This whole, this whole pulpit had a beginning. These pieces of papers had a beginning. You had a beginning. God never had a beginning. He's outside of time. And from his position outside of time, he can see all of time in the same time. So he can tell you exactly what's gonna happen at the end from the beginning. No one can do that. The more you contemplate that, the more your brain just wants to go, ah, and give up. Here's what God says. If there's another idol, if there's another God, if there's another thing, let it stand up. Let it come talk to me. Let's have a duel. And here's the test. What does it know? What does it know? Verse eight, he tells the Israelites, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? Before they were in exile, 170 years before Isaiah's prophesying about this very moment. Before it ever happened, Isaiah already told them it would happen. Before it happened, God's saying, I've told you who I am. I've announced it. I've declared it. You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock I know of none? I feel like there's a little bit of irony in here. I feel like there's a wee bit of sarcasm from God. God is the all-knowing God. He's omniscient. There's nothing outside of his knowledge. And yet he asks Judah, in exile, is there any other God besides me? I don't know of any. The all-knowing God, I don't know of any. I'm it. I'm it. Is there any other rock, he says? I know of one. No, of none, excuse me. I know of none. Can you hear the irony in what's being said? Can you hear God throwing down his, his metaphorical glove saying, let's go? It's go time. Let's talk about these gods of the Babylonians. Let's talk about the idols that are in your hearts here today. Let's talk about the things that rise up to take my place. Is there any God besides me? I know of none, he says. Listen, we can easily become content in what we have when we fix our gaze on things that are near to us. I remember when I lived in Italy, I had a Fiat Tipo. It was just a run-of-the-mill, average, no bells, no whistles kind of car. And I got happy with my car. It, was, it got me from point A to point B. It was a Fiat Tipo. It's like a working man's car. I was happy with my car, content with what I had, until I parked it next to someone else's car. 
And then every time I parked it next to someone else's car, I could see how inferior my car was. I could see how, especially if it was like a Maserati or a Ferrari parked next to my car. And then you could really see the greatness of something else and the inferiority of what I had. And the first way that we're going to guard our hearts to protect our hearts against idol worship, even in our own lives as believers, is to focus our gaze in knowing his greatness. We need to see his greatness and it should, it should shatter our attention. It should take everything else out of our lives and we should see him for who he is and we'll never have a desire to worship any other gods. But he doesn't stop there. Not only, number one, do we need to guard our hearts by knowing his greatness. Number two, guard your heart by knowing their weaknesses. Guard your heart by knowing their weaknesses. And we're gonna see three subpoints here. I think they're in your notes as well. Yahweh now points out not only how great he is, but now how powerless and weak man-made idols really are. And he's gonna do it in three ways. He's gonna, and some of these kind of overlap a little bit, but just to give us a little bit of structure, we're gonna talk about the craftsman, craftsman's weakness in verses nine to 11. We're gonna talk about the idol's weakness in verses 12 to 17, and then the followers' weaknesses in 18 to 20. So let's look at the first one, the craftsman's weakness. Isaiah 44, verse nine. Those who form a graven image are all of them futile, and their desirable things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know so that they will be put to shame. Who has formed a God or cast a graven image to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame. The craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them, the craftsmen, stand up. Let them be in dread and let them together be put to shame. Here the Lord is calling for the craftsmen of the idols, the idol makers the idol workers to stand up before him and to present their case before the holy and living God. In verse nine, in essence, he, he delivers the subpoena to them. He taunts them to line up in front of him. He calls their own prophets, the, uh, in verse nine, he says their own witnesses. Those are the, the witnesses of the idol. So those who would speak for the idol, the prophets of the idol, they are blind. They fail to see, he said in verse nine, or even to know. Their own prophets know nothing and they're to be put to shame. He says three times in uh, verse nine and then twice in verse 11 that all of them are to be put to shame. Verse 10, he starts to attack the first of their wrongdoings. It's here that the Lord wants his children to start thinking rationally. All of these craftsmen are in it for the money. Look what he says in verse 10. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? No one has ever been in the, the business of idol making pro bono. They're not just making idols and then depending on the idols to then care for them and, and feed them, to give them nourishment in life. They're in it for the money. No God, no God crafter is ever in it for the sake of the God himself or for humanitarian efforts. They're in it for the money. They're in it for profit. The second argument is found in verse 11 and it's really gonna continue all the way through verse 20, but he argues that the idol makers themselves are but mere men. They're mere men. His challenge to those who worship idols and his challenge to us is to think about the idol that's in your heart and the, the, the production of that idol is made by a mere man. Right back then, the idols were of, of images of these gods, the, the god of the rivers or the god of trees or, or the god of the sky or birds, whatever the image idol is. But the idol itself, the god itself didn't make that image. It took a mere man. It took a creation, part of creation to create something that in theory is greater than creation. Right, throughout the Old Testament, we're called not to worship idols or not to have images, right? And the reason why is it's easy to have an image that we can set up here and we can say, look, here's my God. Look, I worship and serve this God and, and maybe offer incense or sacrifice to this God. But then we can leave that God there and turn around and turn our backs to God and walk away. You can't turn your back 
on an omnipresent God, can you? You can't turn your back on the image of God. Who is created in the image of God? We are. As you look at each other, you're seeing image bearers and you can't, you can't image that into an idol that you can put on your shelf. And here he says, these, however, these idols are made by mere men. They themselves, the men, assemble them. They put them together. They craft them. We're gonna read about that in a second. The gods themselves aren't capable of creating their own images, but they need men to create images so that they can be worshiped by men. Whereas we serve Yahweh, the living God, the creator of heaven and earth, who has created men. We worship up. We worship the creator of all things, not, not an image made by someone. We have to remember that the best that we can ever do will always be inferior to us. In no way could we create an image or an idol or a God better than what God has already created because he is the creator. So his first argument against them is look at the craftsman's weakness and really their weakness is that they are mere men and worshiping something created by a mere man is pathetic worship. But number two, we're gonna look at the idol's weakness and some of this overlaps a little bit But he says, not only are the crafters to be shamed, but the idols themselves are futile. Look at verse 12. The man crafts iron into a cutting tool and does his work over coals, forming it with hammers and working it with his powerful arm. He also gets hungry and has no power. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another crafts wood. He extends a measuring line and he outlines it with a stylus. He makes it with planes and outlines it with a compass and he makes it like the form of a man, like the glory of man, so that it may sit in a house. In order to cut cedars for himself, himself he takes a cypress or an oak and raises it up for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. God is now really unleashing the ridiculous nature of worshiping anything outside of who he is. He describes the folly of even considering that humans, created beings, have to work and sweat with effort and energy in order to simply make the tools to begin the design, right? That's how he started off. He said the craftsman Uh, He crafts iron into a cutting tool and he does his work over the coals. He he sweats, maybe even bleeds. and, And if he doesn't eat, he gets weak. And if he doesn't drink, he's thirsty and he needs help. He's a mere man. He has to measure, he outlines, he makes tools to, to plane and form and cut. And in the end, he makes an image of man. Henry Rousseau, the French post-impressionist painter writes this, in the beginning, God created man in his own image. Man, being a gentleman, returned the favor, making man the image of God, not, or making God in the image of man, excuse me, I said that backwards. We love ourselves. We love making images of ourselves. We love creating God in our own image. I was reading an article uh, that was, I think, written around 2017. There's actually a category for this now for death by selfies. 259 deaths were recorded from 2011 to 2017, and and I read another article. That number has gone way up. It's uh, this idea that it's not just enough to take a picture of something, but I have to be in that picture of something. And the article is actually kind of funny. If someone's taking a picture of their food or they're taking a selfie with people, that's fine. But when they put themselves in dangerous situations, that's where it gets risky. Uh, There's a category of people that have died from taking selfies near moving trains because they were trying to get as close to the train as they possibly could to take the selfie. I was at the Grand Canyon uh, years ago and I'm watching people get to the edge of the Grand Canyon and they're trying to get as close, and I stopped watching because I was afraid of what was gonna happen and then they've got their selfie stick and they're trying to look down the canyon and, and that's happened actually. 
They were talking in the article that we need to have no selfie zones in the world. And there's some countries that actually have, have no selfie zones in certain cities. And some cities have become no selfie zones because we make ourselves out to be God. And we want everyone to see us. I'm guilty. I take selfies. Um, <laughs> but I try not to do the dangerous ones. As creative as humanity is, we're enamored with who we are. How often have you maybe said in your heart, maybe not out loud, but in your heart, maybe out loud, if I were God, I would have dot, dot, dot. Maybe it's going through a trial or going through a difficult time. If, if I were in charge, if I were sovereign, if I were king and Lord and creator of the heavens and the earth, I would do things differently. And maybe you've never said it. Maybe you have. But we think all too highly of ourselves all too often. I love how God says in verse 14 that the idol has to sit in a house. So this idol crafted by mere men has to now sit in a house because it can't handle the elements. It needs to be protected. The idol of whatever God it is that's being worshiped needs to be protected from the wind and the rain and, and the sun. And so it has to sit in a house. And in Jeremiah, God takes it out and he speaks to the idol or he's speaking of them. And he says, they make beautiful, they make it beautiful with silver and gold in Jeremiah. They strengthen it with nails and hammers and with hammers so that it will not totter. So they hammer their idol down so that it can't be moved in an earthquake or it can't fall over because the idol needs help. God is making fun of the ridiculous nature of worshiping idols. The king of the universe who cannot be, who cannot be uh, boiled down to a single small image says it's ridiculous that you would allow your hearts to look at something else besides me. Verse 14, look how ridiculous the craftsman is while he's performing his craft. The Lord makes a simple and yet very pointed argument regarding idol making. He says that the trees of the forest essentially are picked at random. Think about this idol maker in verse 14. He goes into the forest. Surely he cuts a cedar for himself or takes a cypress or an oak. Just kind of random. It's not like a holy tree. There was no angels going hallelujah around the tree. He just walks into the forest and he picks a tree at random and he cuts it down. He keeps going. He raises it up for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, look at this part, and the rain makes it grow. Who causes the rain? God does. Who brings the rain for the tree to grow? God does. Who causes the tree to grow? God does. So here the maker and creator of the universe creates the tree that, that, is, that is growing at random in a forest and a craftsman walks into the forest, looks around at the random trees that he didn't create, cuts one down that God created and he's gonna fashion it into an idol. So we have an idol or a God who is utterly dependent on man. To make him, to create him and protect him, to perfect him, to carve him out and, and, and design him, to keep him polished and shined and to put him in a house. So these idols are utterly dependent on us. Think about the idols that might be in your life. Maybe not the little Buddha sitting on your dresser, may not be a Roman Catholic saint. We may not be worshiping uh, animist gods of Africa but we do have idols in our hearts and they're man-made and they're weak and they're pointless, especially when you hold it up in light of the almighty maker of heaven and earth. Verse, four, or verse 15 and on, then it, becomes, then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he's cut down this tree and now he's got something to burn. So he takes one of them, one of the pieces of wood, and he warms himself. He also kindles a fire to bake bread. He also works to produce a God and worships it. He makes it his graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire and over this half he eats meat 
as he roasts a roast and is satisfied and he warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it, he makes into a God. His graven images, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships it and he prays to it and he says, deliver me for you are my God. Here's God again pointing out just the ridiculous nature of this. Here's a tree that the craftsman has cut down and half of the tree, he says, oh, I need fire to, to heat up my house and I need fire to bake my bread. And, and so he sits in front of it and he warms himself. And the other half of said random tree is over here and he now makes that into a God and he bows down and he worships before it. How ridiculous. Half of the creation is used for simple practical needs while the other half of creation is treated with high respect. The Lord isn't making fun only of the worshipers but of those who make them. They're deceived and foolish if they think that a piece of wood that they've used to warm themselves and make dinner with can then, can then save them and redeem them. Deceived to the point of prostrating himself and praying for deliverance, he doesn't see the senselessness of his own act. The whole process is ludicrous. He's made tools over a forge and he sweat and bled to make the tools. Then he goes out to the, to the forest with those tools that he's made and he cuts down a tree. And then he has to sweat to bring it in. And then he needs food to eat. So he uses half the tree to bake his own bread. The whole process is just ridiculous. He's used the wood for his pragmatic purposes and then he bows down and worships it. But we can be like that too. It's easy to see this and say, but that's not, that's not us. We don't do that. We don't have that kind of thing going on in our hearts and in front of us and in our lives. But you know what? We worship similar things in similar waves. We, we strive to get degrees, diplomas, grades, money, bank accounts, retirement funds, etc. All things that we bow down and worship. All things that can, that can take our focus off the, the living God. We do those same things. Things that we've worked for. Degrees. And I have to be careful of that too. I have degrees. Is it something, are you working, college student, seminary student, for a degree that you can put on a wall and that becomes your end all in things? Are you in your degree to worship the God who gave you the wisdom and knowledge for that degree? Are you working so that you can have a bigger bank account, a bigger retirement fund, so that you can care for yourself in retirement? Forgetting that it's the Lord who gave you that job and it's the Lord who, who cares for you and keeps you. He's the Lord who will protect you for your life. I'm not saying it's wrong to have a retirement account. I'm saying, are you depending on that or are you depending on the Lord who's given you those gifts and those goods? We're so easily like these people who make and worship idols. Ralph Waldo Emerson says this, a person will worship something, have no doubt about it. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. He says, therefore, it behooves us to be careful of what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. It's a non-believer that said that. Let's look at our third point, the follower's weakness. Verses 18 to 20. Not only are the craftsmen to be pitied and shamed and the idols themselves inferior, but those who trust the idols are blind. 44, 18. They do not know nor do they understand for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see and their hearts so they cannot have insight. No one causes this to return to his heart. In other words, no one rethinks this, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, wait a minute, I've burned half of it in the fire and I've also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood he feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside and he cannot deliver his soul and he cannot say, there is a lie in my right hand. These verses underscore the ignorance 
that the craftsman displays as they go about their days and the ignorance of the worshiper as they worship. The idolaters are spiritual fools. They're spiritually ignorant. Not only are they ignorant, but they've been blinded. They're blind to truth, the truth of God, and they've been given over to their sins. I I think about my city in Sicily with Sebastian coming down the road. They're blind to the truth. They're blind to seeing that this idol does nothing. This is January 20th. This is less than a month after the birth of our Lord. And I remember talking with some of my friends, non-believers saying, wait, you realize you have more celebration and more excitement over the death of this martyr who is the patron saint of your city than you have over the birth of Christ for whom he died. And they went, oh, huh. But they keep going. They're blind to truth. They're, they're, uh, they're, their followers, the, the men, the boys of Sebastian, they all, they're all dressed a little differently so you can tell who they are. They, they would walk around with no shoes on, carrying this idol all throughout town. No shoes, however, they would have about five pairs of socks on because um, they weren't fools. But they're not seeing that this isn't helping. This is, there's the ridiculous nature of, being this, of walking this idol around. It's kind of a grotesque idol. It's Sebastian tied to a tree with arrows coming out of him. It's weird but they don't see that. They're blind. They've been, have had their eyes smeared over so they can't see and their hearts so that they have no insight. They're not able to think through that this makes literally no sense. They're blind to what they're doing. Sinful people don't want a holy and righteous God. We want a world that we've created, that we've designed, a world that we can dictate. So we know how things are gonna go. We know how it's gonna end. We know that we can control it. We want our God to please our pleasures. We want our God to listen to our lusts. We want one that will bow down to our beckoning. They can't understand what they're doing and they keep doing it. He feeds on ashes, verse 20. It's a reference to the emptiness of his actions. Eating ashes might help clean your teeth, but that's it. There's no sustenance to it. There's no nourishment to it. So too, worshiping man-made idols or religions is empty. It's devoid of all reality. And this guy can't even see the folly or the foolishness of his own actions because he's blind to the truth. And I think personally of the three ways that we've looked at the weaknesses of the idols, we've looked at the craftsmen's, the idol's weakness, and now the follower's weakness, I think this is the saddest because there's a blindness to it. There's an ignorance to it. It's following after and worshiping something without even, without even having the wherewithal to say this doesn't make sense. Their only hope is that the God who created light and opens the eyes of the blind would open their eyes because that's the contrast, isn't it? Think about it. Idols blind people, God opens their eyes. The idols give no understanding, but God is the God who gives understanding and knowledge. Idolatry is a deceptive lie, but God is the God who reveals truth. Idols lead people astray, but God calls people to turn their lives to him and not only not be led astray, but follow truth. Believer, how do you guard your heart from idols? How do we do that? First of all, we do it by looking intently at the greatness of our God. And by doing so, it should cause us to want to say with Paul in uh, in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, but it's not I. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My passion should be God. My desire should be God. The things that I wanna do should be dictated by God. Paul says over and over in the New Testament, I'm a slave. I'm a slave of Christ. We talked about this in youth group. What is a, when does a slave decide to do anything? They don't. They listen to the master. And Paul says, my master is a good and living God. I wanna follow him. I don't want anything to take his place in my heart. I don't want anything to challenge who he is in my heart. Whether it's sports, whether it's screen time on your iPhone, whether it's whatever it is, God must be the number one thing in your mind and in your heart at all times. 
How do you guard your heart from idols? It starts by knowing his greatness. He's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There is no God besides him and any idol worship is silliness. And we also looked at the weaknesses of the idols themselves. So as we come to a close, what are the implications of this text? There's a bunch. I've just got two for us right now. The first implication, the doctrinal implication that this text brings to light is that um, non-believers are blind to truth. Non-believers are blind to truth. We get that from this text. We saw in 1 John chapter 5 over and over, John said, we know. You and I know, but they don't know. You and I know truth, but they don't know truth. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26, 18, while giving his testimony, declares that the Lord told him, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Pray for them that God would open their eyes. We've just heard um, about Lydia from Thyatira as Pastor Adam's preaching through Acts 16. The Lord opened her eyes so that she could see and understand the truth. One of my favorite texts in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, Paul writes this, in their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So they've been blinded. He goes on to say a little bit later, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown or shone, if you're British, in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. God opens eyes. God opens eyes. Paul writes to Timothy that non-believers are snared by the devil to do his will. They're being held captive by the devil to do his will. So what do we need to do? We need to pray. We need to pray that God would open their eyes. We can't save them. We can't convince them. We can have the very best of arguments. We can dot our I's, cross our T's. We can have the, the sharpest theological doctrinal arguments that we can possibly have. But unless the Lord opens their eyes, they won't see it. So the first implication is to pray. Pray for your non-believing family member. Pray for your coworker. Pray for your neighbor, pray for students at your school, pray that the Lord would open their eyes so that they could see. And the second implication from this text is that you must cast your homemade gods far from you. Whatever it is that you've held up in your heart or continue to hold up in your heart, and I'm not saying those things that we listed earlier aren't wrong. Knowing sports stats aren't wrong, isn't wrong, right? Knowing stuff isn't bad. Being on your cell phone isn't necessarily an evil, right? But the evil is when that thing takes more of a priority in your heart and in your mind than Christ does. Do you know his word? Do you read it? Do you love it? Do you memorize it? Listen, make no mistake, while we do not have idols sitting on our shelves, there is a battle. There is a battle to remove them in our hearts. Anything that takes the Lord's place as your primary goal of worship becomes an idol. Anything that vies for your attention can become an idol. Anything to which you give higher glory and honor to than God is an idol. Maybe you've made your finances an idol. Maybe you've made your sports an idol. Maybe it's your degree. Maybe it's your fear and anxiety in life. Maybe you've made that your idol. Maybe your pride has become your idol. Maybe you've made your family or your ministry or your success or your homeschooling or your public schooling an idol. Maybe you've made your no-vax or vax position your idol. All of these must be cast down to worship the true and living God so that we can say with Paul, not I, but Christ lives in me. No idol lives in me, but Christ lives in me. Anything that displaces your trust and faith in God either threatens to become an idol or has become an idol and you and I are his image bearers. There is no idol. We carry his image with us. I love, the, I love in the New Testament where, where Jesus is, is asked, do we pay taxes? And what does Jesus say? He says, hold up a coin whose image is on the coin. And the coin is held up and he says, it's Caesar's image, they say. So he says, well, then render to Caesar that which is Caesar's 
and render to God that which is God's. What is God's image? Who is God's image? Right, we are. So let's not worship any other image or any other thing, but let's gaze intently on the greatness of God. And the more that you gaze on the greatness of God, the less you need to see even your own idol's weakness. The more I looked at nicer cars, the more I realized my Fiat Tipo was a nothing. The more that we focus on who God is, we don't even have to think about how silly our idol worship is, do we? because we're enamored by who he is. We worship and honor him for who he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is so cage rattling. Lord, your word is so clear. You are clear in your word as you attack the silly nature of idol worship. And Lord, it's easy for us to think, well, we have no idols in our lives. And it's easy for us to point to other cultures and other religions and, and kind of shake our heads and say, shame on them. And yet, Lord, we harbor little idols in our own hearts. We live for the little idols that are in our lives and we refuse to let them go at times. So Lord, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that your word wakes us up and it causes us to sit up a little bit straighter and to think a little bit harder and to think about how you are the one and only. You are Yahweh, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things and everything pales in comparison to you. Lord, help us to have a strong fixed gaze on you, Lord, so that these other things in our lives do not become idols. Help us, Lord, uh, to encourage one another to not have idols in our lives. Help us, Lord, to think like John in 1 John and help us to protect our hearts from idols, Lord, by looking intently at you. In your name we pray, amen.